Welcome to ADHD is over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is over. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Dr. Anna Lemke. Dr. Lemke is a professor of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine and chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. A clinician scholar, she's the author of more than 100 peer-reviewed publications, has testified before the United States House of Representatives and Senate, has served as an expert witness in federal and state opioid litigation, and is an internationally recognized leader in addiction, medicine, treatment, and education. In 2016, she published Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop, highlighted in the New York Times as one of the top five books to read to understand the opioid epidemic. Dr. Lemke appeared in the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, an unvarnished look at the impact of social media on our lives. Her latest book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence was an instant New York Times and Los Angeles Times bestseller and has been translated into 30 languages. It combines the neuroscience of addiction with the wisdom of recovery to explore the problem of compulsive overconsumption in a dopamine overloaded world. So it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Anna Lemke. Hi, Anna. Thanks for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. It is my pleasure, and I'll tell you why. Because I've been researching uh, ADHD and recently dopamine addiction and uh, this sort of idea of the short-term payoff reward system, right, for a long time, and your name just kept coming up and coming up. I'm like, that's it. Got to reach out, <laughs> make it happen. Whether I like it or not, <laughs> got to talk to this lady. Okay. <laughs> so thank you for being here. Really You're appreciate welcome. that. Yeah. So I'm going to start off with a question that I ask a lot of experts. To you, uh, what is ADHD? ADHD is a way of thinking and processing that involves a lot of drifting and dreaming and the potential for deep cross-category creativity, but which sacrifices uh, a certain degree of efficiency. Got it. I like that. It's like every answer I ever get is so different and yet <laughs> so related. Yes, so some unifying themes. So you have written a couple of books that are, I think are impressive. By the way, I love your titles. I'm a title guy. Like uh -huh. I love to come up with titles before I even write something. Great. So in this case, you know, Dopamine Nation uh, caught my attention. Then there's the Drug Dealer MD, which we will talk about a little bit later. But how did you start out when you had this idea to write a Dopamine Nation? Like what triggered that? Uh, I know you're you're an expert in addiction and, and we'll talk about ADHD, but what was the moment that you were like, okay, that's it. I got to do this. Mm. Here's why. Mm -hmm. Great. So the moment for me, really Dopamine Nation is ideas that have been brewing in my brain for about two decades or more. Um, and is kind of the culmination of some of my summative 
thoughts regarding mental health, addiction, et cetera, in the modern world. Um, but the moment when I said to myself, okay, I've got to really write this book was an encounter with a patient of mine named Jim. That's his pseudonym, a Stanford affiliated professor who has given me permission to share his real life story for all of you uh, to, in order to help people. Very generous of him. And he came in seeking help for an extremely debilitating uh, sex and compulsive masturbation addiction, which had led to uh, despairing depression, suicidal ideation, uh, the loss of his uh, primary relationship with his wife, um, and a kind of deep hopelessness. And his particular addiction uh, in, escalated to the point where he had actually built his own masturbation machine. He's an engineer scientist. And as he was telling me his story, I felt myself of two minds. On the one hand, I was just a little bit horrified. You know, I see a lot in my work and there's not all that much that surprises me anymore, but his actually crossed that threshold. I thought, oh, geez, you know, uh, a masturbation machine, that's something. And then simultaneously I had this thought, oh, wait, I have a masturbation machine. And that's my Kindle that I use to access uh, romance novels uh, and engage in similar compulsive behaviors. And really at the end of the day, what's the difference? And it was that moment that I thought that's the crucible within which to really draw parallels between severe addiction and the kind of minor compulsions that most, if not all of us in the modern world are struggling with as we live in this drugified ecosystem. Yeah, I remember that um, when I was listening to your book on uh, Audible. And it's interesting because I myself was in a program at the time with uh, Dr. Skinner. Um, he's a uh, also a sex uh, addiction expert. And I remember talking to him about ADHD and going like, well, is it, it kind of seems... Would you think it's an addiction maybe? And I remember him going like, huh? Yeah. I mean, you could say that like, it was a kind of a new, not new, but it was like, it made him think. And I thought, well, if an expert is, it makes an expert think <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'm on to something. Right? right. So then when I started reading your book or listening to your book, I was like, oh my God, yes, yes. So then that brought me up that I read this quote uh, on one of the reviews that said that ADHD and addiction sh have a shared biological background. Could you maybe talk about that and feel free to, to incorporate anything related to dopamine receptors and how that works in the brain for us laymen to kind of understand what we're dealing with here? Sure. So uh, in order to understand addiction, we need to understand the recent neuroscience that has said the last 75 years or so of how we process pleasure and pain. Turns out that pleasure and pain are co-located in the brain. And broadly speaking, in the most simplified and reductionistic forms, they work like opposite sides of a balance or a teeter-totter in a kid's playground when we're at rest. That beam on the central fulcrum is level with the ground. When we experience pleasure, it tips one way, pain, it tips the other. There are certain rules governing the balance. And the first and most important rule is that it wants to remain level or what neuroscientists call homeostasis. So that with any deviation from neutrality, either to the side of pleasure or pain, our brains are going to work very hard to restore a level balance. And we do that importantly, first by tipping an equal and opposite amount to whatever the initial stimulus was. So 
let's say I read a romance novel that releases dopamine and other feel-good neurotransmitters in my brain's reward pathway, my balance tilt to the side of pleasure. No sooner has that happened than my brain is going to do work to bring that level again. That's called neuroadaptation. I like to think of that as these little neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again, but they like it there. So they stay on until we're tilted an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. That's that moment of wanting to read one more chapter or one more romance novel, or just not wanting to escape that fantasy world. That's the come down, the hangover, the blue Monday. Now, if I pause long enough, those gremlins on the pain side of balance, get the memo, hop off, homeostasis is restored, craving abates, and I move on. But if I continue to consume that reinforcing substance and behavior, I basically go to war with my gremlins. Uh, I get more and more gremlins accumulating on the pain side of the balance. Now I need more of my drug in more potent forms to get the same effect. I'm escalating from you know vampire romance novels written for teenagers to frank erotica over time. And then eventually I change my hedonic or joy set point. Uh, and you can imagine that as the gremlins essentially camped out on the pain side of the balance. Or you can imagine it as that central fulcrum shifted to the left. Now I need my drug not to get high and feel good, but just to level the balance and feel normal. And when I'm not using, I'm walking around with a balance chronically tilted to the side of pain, experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, craving. And for the purposes of this conversation, you could add inattention or inability to really focus. And when I use my drug, it temporarily gets better, but really in the long term, all I'm doing is making the situation worse. So that that's that's essentially what happens in the addicted brain. Where is the overlap there with with ADHD? There's some evidence to suggest that people with ADHD are have a compromised pleasure pain balance that that may indeed may not be starting out with a level balance. Maybe they're already starting out with a balance slightly tilted to the side of pain. So they're motivated to use not to get high, but just to feel normal. Um, and people with ADHD need a priori or at even before initial exposure, more potent rewards to get a dopamine hit at all. So not only is that pleasure pain balance starting out slightly tilted to the side of pain, again, this is highly reductionistic, simplified, largely metaphorical, um, but they also will not get the same uh, response or sensitivity or tilt to pleasure uh, with the same amount of, let's say, reward that uh, another person might. All of which sets up uh, the person with ADHD for increased vulnerability to addiction because they're trying to restore homeostasis or level balance by reaching for those uh, intoxicants. And they're needing more of the intoxicant in order to get that reward. And indeed, what we know from epidemiologic data is that uh, kids with ADHD are at increased risk to develop addiction in adult life, and that people who need more salient or potent rewards to feel anything rewarding at all uh, are people who are more vulnerable to the problem of addiction. Plus, we know that the character trait of impulsivity, which is the inability or the reduced ability to press the pause button between wanting to do something and doing that thing is also a risk factor for addiction and also a characteristic of ADHD or people diagnosed with ADHD. So all of that is to say that there seems to be some overlap 
between people who have ADHD, this cognitive processing uh, difference, and people who are vulnerable to addiction. Yeah, it seems like a it's a fine line because as you were speaking, I saw this as almost like a nuanced two-parter. Like one is that could it be that the ADHD type of behavior is an addiction to something more exciting than the current present moment and space that I'm in, right? Based on trauma, based on whatever we want to say caused the behavior in the first place. And then because our world is now filled with these amazing uh, addictive uh, pleasures and substances, that then that simple addiction to just uh, see a squirrel that's more exciting than this uncomfortable moment, now it's a a pill or a joint or something. And then it kind of makes sense that, oh yeah, now this ADHD person has become an addict makes sense, but there's, it's so nuanced almost like, how do you feel about that, that idea that, um, that it's due to the environment and, and potentially trauma, traumatic influences in a, in a child's life that eventually that behavior that we call symptoms shows up, right? Do you believe what, if you had to put your finger on one major cause or a few major causes, what would you point towards? It's important to make a distinction between those a priori inborn genetic risk factors, which are really just a tribute to our unique individual wiring, including the kind of brain wiring that makes people have more ADHD-like brains, right? Whether you conceptualize that as a disorder or a difference. I like to think of it as a difference that's not adequately celebrated in society today. But nonetheless, it's that unique wiring that makes people a priori more vulnerable. Then you have the risk of the exposure to intoxicants and in all their various forms from drugs to social media, to video games, to YouTube, Netflix, gambling, pornography, romance novels, whatever it is for that person. Uh, and how repeated exposure to substances and behaviors that release a lot of dopamine in the reward pathway, causing this neuroadaptive process, actually changes the brain to set up these addiction neural circuits. So you have both, right? You have you come into the world with a certain degree of vulnerability, and then you're exposed to environmental toxins. You could really regard them as toxins in the form of addictive substances and behaviors, which then change the brain, which then make you more vulnerable to addiction to that substance, as well as what we call cross addiction to other substances and behaviors. Now, specifically, you ask about trauma, childhood trauma. It sounds like you're defining trauma both as exposure to intoxicants, but more broadly, perhaps you're also talking about dysfunctional caregivers, dys dysfunctional family systems. That's a well-known risk factor for addiction as well. Um, exactly how it works, we don't know, except that we know that chronic stress uh, will increase the likelihood of an organism turning to intoxicants uh, and quick rewards as a way to, quote-unquote, cope with that. So all of that, you know, together conspires. Yeah, and it's great. You know, Gabor Mate uh, says uh, repeatedly that it's ADHD is a coping mechanism, right? If we're putting it simply, of course, that's we can never put anything simply. But I do agree with that, that it's sort of coping with uh, in, in, instead of being in this uncomfortable moment, right? Or this PTS, childhood PTSD kind of 
energy that you don't want to be in because you're a child. You want to be happy. You want to be excited, right? And so when we're talking about a coping mechanism and then the drugs being also, right, the numbing out of the moment, right, the numbing out of the pain, I love that uh, you said somewhere uh, that we're trying too hard to avoid pain in this society. And when I read that, it just, I got goosebumps again, just right now saying it, uh, please tell me more about that. Cause I just, from what I'm reading, I'm already agreeing, but I would love to hear uh, more details on that. What does that mean? For yeah, you? great. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the way that I phrase it in the book is that maybe I, I sort of phrase it as a question. Maybe the reason that we're all so miserable is because we're working so hard to avoid being miserable. And the support for that is experiential. Um, but also neurobiological. If we go back to this pleasure-pain balance, we know that in the pursuit of reward or pleasure, all we're doing is causing our brain to change and adapt to that by actually down-regulating dopamine transmission, not just to baseline, but below baseline into this dopamine deficit state, which is akin to clinical depression, clinical anxiety, clinical ADHD, you name it. Uh, so literally from a bio chemical uh, perspective by exposing our brains to all of these instant gratifications, we are changing our brains and our brains are essentially reeling from this fire hose of dopamine. But also, I mean, if any major philosophical or theological tradition will repeat the wisdom again and again and again, which is that the pursuit of, you know, immediate pleasurable sensory gratification uh, doesn't work out well. <laughs> and you can go back all the way to Epicurus. You know, people think of Epicureans as people who stuff their faces. But in fact, Epicure, Epicurus said, you know, quite uh, clearly that uh, it is the consumption of pleasurable substances, including food, uh, in moderation and avoiding uh, intoxicants, that is uh, the key to remaining in balance and, and staying healthy and happy and all of those things. So this is not, you know, it's not like new news, but what's interesting is the way that our growing understanding of how the brain works is echoing, complementing, and corroborating uh, ancient wisdom. I love that. I'm going to look that up too, because I love yeah. going back in time and seeing what they said. And they said they said it already, right? It's they like, did, most of the time, it's already been said. We just forget. We were, we're a little amnestic in between. Now, let's talk about chemical imbalance. I hear this a lot. And it almost seems to be to sort of end all like, well, it's a chemical imbalance, so there's nothing you can do. And two things that come up for me. A, a chemical imbalance in a brain can be create it moment to moment to moment to moment and brains, the neuroplasticity, right? Things can change over time, even into an older age. So how come we've accepted this theory as in like, oh, that's it. If you have depression, the chemicals are off in your brain. You were born that way. It's just, you have a disorder, right? Versus what you were just kind of hinting at, I think that the, the environmental stressors and the toxins and everything affects our neurochemistry. So is that theory, what is it about? Why is it still so, so prominent out there? Why do parents still hear it and believe it and eat it and right? Boom, medication. 
Right, right. So, you know, the 1990s was the decade of the brain, and that was really the uh, sort of bleeding edge of this idea that if we are unhappy or we're manifesting psychopathology of any sort, there must be something wrong with the chemicals in our brain. And in fact, I'm not actually entirely disputing that because the argument I'm making with this pleasure-pain-balance metaphor is that, yes, we become unbalanced. We go into a dopamine deficit state, again, highly simplified and reductionistic, but I'm also arguing that something's out of balance. But the key difference between what I'm arguing and the the, the way that chemical imbalance uh, has been employed and deployed since at least probably the 1950s is that... I'm arguing that it's not that our brains innately are problematic. It's that there's a mismatch between how our brains evolved and the world that we find ourselves in today. So we have a very ancient hedonic or pleasure pain system that evolved in a world and for a world of scarcity and ever-present danger that makes us the ultimate seekers, never satisfied with what we have, always wanting more. And we do absolutely phenomenally in that world. Uh, but we don't live in that world. We now live in this world of overwhelming overabundance. Our brains are now having to deal with this fire hose of dopamine. So we are imbalanced, but it's not because we are defective. It's because our evolved brain is not well matched for the world that we have created. The kind of chemical imbalance theory that came to be sort of uh, dominant um, in the 1990s and up to the present day is this idea that the world is fine, but your brain has a problem. Um, and so what we need to do is give you drugs that will change and balance the chemicals in your brain so that you can be normal like the rest of us. And I would say that through my career, I uh, have begun to think that that is less and less likely to be the case, and that more and more what we're dealing with is this mismatch between an individual's unique wiring and uh, and the world that we live in, and that it's a very stressful world in uh, non-intuitive ways. I talk about the plenty paradox and the ways in which overabundance itself is a stressor. Um, and and I, I really kind of see people in recovery from severe addictions as modern day prophets, because if they can make it in this world, people who are, you know, genetically more likely to spend a lot of time seeking out rewards, sacrificing for rewards, key players, by the way, in the human tribal ancestry, if we were going to survive scarcity, if those people can make it in the world that we live in today, then surely they've acquired some amazing wisdom for the rest of us. That's beautiful. Yeah. And what you said just reminds me of the Krishnamurti quote. I think it goes like, uh, it is no measure of health to be well adjusted to sick society. <laughs> yes, that's right. Right. And it's, yeah. it's so, it's so true. And I remember that was the, that's the quote that we plan on starting our documentary with because, uh, Dr. Armstrong, uh, Thomas Armstrong, I interviewed also said that maybe our children with ADHD, you know, could it be that they're not disordered, but that we live in a disordered culture. Right, exactly. I, sometimes I like to sort of um, riff on Marx. Marx said religion is the opioid of the masses, but today opioids are the opioid of the masses. <laughs> you know, opioid, stimulants, benzos. Absolutely. Yeah. And 
you know, talking about opioids. So I just want to ask you, you wrote a book called Drug Dealer MD. Now that says a lot in, I don't know how many letters it is. I can't count right now, <laughs> but that says so much. And yet you are an MD and you mm -hmm. operate in fairly academics, you know, circles that I would imagine uh, at some point you felt perhaps uh, criticized, judged, you, you tell us about it, but I'm just curious how did that come about and what was the reaction from the community academic or the uh, medical scientific? Cause it's a powerful statement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, I think when I, but both, both when I wrote and published that book and decided on the title for that book, I was a little naive in the sense that I didn't really think anybody would read it or care about it. Um, and so it was a surprise to me when it became widely known. I mean, not, you know, not crazy, but certainly widely known. And I've made enemies in the process. Um, and that's been difficult, uh, you know, but fortunately, like that's where sort of some degree of naivete may be helpful in life. Like had I known what was coming, maybe I wouldn't have written it, but I don't regret having having written it. Um, I also want to emphasize that I'm a psychiatrist. I treat patients and almost all of my patients, uh, to almost all of my patients, I prescribe medication. I'm very grateful for these tools. I'm very grateful for the scientists who developed uh, and studied uh, these valuable tools. At the same time, I think they're wildly overprescribed and that we are harming people because we're overprescribing, because we're not discussing risk benefits and alternatives. And we're overprescribing because it's easier for us, not because it's really the best thing for them. And these are systemic problems. Uh, these are deeply entrenched systemic problems related to a fee-for-service healthcare system, which prioritizes pills and procedures over real problem solving. But I always like to emphasize that, you know, it's not to say we shouldn't use psychotropics at all. Um, or that every person who's on a psychotropic should get off of it immediately. Um, mental illness is real. These medications can be life-saving for some individuals. Yeah. And and thank you for saying that because I'm in the same boat. I'm not anti-meds. It's not an anti-med movement, but it's really an anti, let's use it for everything right away and just blanket. And, you know, it, the irresponsibility of it is what definitely bothers me at the core uh, so thank you for saying that. And one of the things I read also is this idea that uh, could have been just a um, a review of of your writing, but this idea, no, actually I think it was in the title, right? That this is can't be stopped. Mm -hmm. Say more about that, because I'm pretty sure you're, you have a pretty optimistic approach to life, just my first read, and I'm the same way, but then there's certain things that just seem unstoppable. And perhaps if you could just share where that came from and, and what do you think could be done, right? I don't believe you think there's nothing that can be done, obviously. So just kind of give us an insight into that. Sure. So the full title of the book is Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop. And to just briefly summarize why it's so hard to stop, number one, this is a systemic infrastructural problem related to our healthcare delivery system, as I just mentioned. Number two, 
addictive psychotropics, including stimulants, benzodiazepines, opioids, and others, sometimes antidepressants, mood stabilizers as well, can be so inherently rewarding for people and for the human brain that people will innately want to continue them beyond the point when they've stopped being useful. So that those are just two big categories of reasons why this is a runaway train. Um, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about it. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to change it. Um, yes, I believe that humans are incredibly adaptable. That's why we've lasted as long as we've lasted. When problems arise, we acknowledge them and we fix them. And it can take a really long time. And the fixing can sometimes lead to new and other problems. But nonetheless, we we tend to wrap our head around old problems. Yeah. And do you think, a uh, random question, are we all addicted to something? I increasingly think that is the case because we live in a world in which almost every substance and behavior has become drugified in some way, made more reinforcing, more accessible, more novel, uh, and more bountiful. I mean, if you think about cocaine addiction, right, that's been around for a long time, and then compare it to TikTok, which is very, very new, and then draw some analogies. Imagine if cocaine were free at the touch of your fingertips and never ran out. We would have a very serious cocaine problem on our hands. And social media lights up the same part of the brain as drugs and alcohol. And because of that, because of this drugified world, I think we've all become much more vulnerable to the problem of compulsive overconsumption. And that was the aha moment for me in wanting to write Dopamine Nation, the awareness that I had become addicted to romance novels, that that was mediated in large part by easy access through my Kindle, through a universe of romance novels that seemed unlimited, um, and through the fact that novels and escape fiction, fantasy in general has, you know, has been that we've cracked the code on that. Like we, we know exactly how to write those stories to keep the pages turning. We to keep people glued to their screen, to keep those episodes that we're watching coming, whatever it is. A food, same thing with food, with the addition of fat, sugar, salt, uh, and flavorants. Food has gone from being something that's basically uh, nutritive and to keep us alive to being a drug, where once we start, very difficult to stop uh, because it doesn't just give us calories we need to stay alive it triggers the release of dopamine in our brain's reward pathway, leading to this vicious cycle of compulsive overconsumption. Great. Um, I know we're we're kind of uh, running out of time, and it's I'm so grateful that you've given your time so generously. So I just want to end with a a question for you know for parents to pr potentially take something away. Like as a parent of a child that you may notice has the behavior of of this sort of the impulses and the looking for the short-term rewards and whether it's addiction or ADHD, what do you think a parent can do or parents can do to kind of help guide along a child and get them hopefully past high school and uh, into college or into life uh, without being too harmed uh, to use that term? Yeah. So number one, look at your own consumptive behavior and model the behavior you would like to see in your child. Number two, open up frank family discussion without being dysregulated, so not in a state of rage or hopelessness or, 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 
or fear. Uh, but when you're calm, when your child is calm, when you're co-parent is calm and talk about the problem. And number two, do not expect that a child will be able to exercise sufficient willpower surrounded by highly reinforcing substances and behaviors. You must create an environment that promotes health. So that means there should not be screens in bedrooms. Children under the age of 12 or so should not have their own personal devices, should not have unfettered access to the internet. Uh, children who are in their teenage years should be engaged in frequent discussions around appropriate use, limiting use, quantity and frequency matter, um, or, uh, what, what we as parents are observing. And, you know, at some point, uh, children will have to grow up and live in the world and decide for themselves how they want to consume. But at least if we have done that, we have built a stronger place for them to be launched into a really challenging world. Great. I love it. Very tangible. And I certainly take some of that to heart myself with two boys, you know, 11 and 14 who are yes. definitely into their video games. And, but we've noticed that a lot of it is balancing, you know, activities, nature, trips, right. like mm -hmm. you said, family activities, conversations, right. and uh, uh, this idea of moderation, right? We can't yes. just say no screens. I mean, you could, but right it's a part of their future part of their lives yeah i mean when they're when they're younger you actually can uh, say no screens and no devices and and really limit it and I, I encourage parents to do that but it's absolutely true no matter how you've raised them early on they will eventually get their own devices if you don't get them for them and then it's a matter of how to help them find an appropriate balance you know in a world that is encouraging them to overconsume. Well, Anna, thank you so much for uh, your wisdom, your insights, sharing your experiences, um, your time. I know you're busy. I really appreciate that. And I know that uh, there's going to be lots of nuggets that parents can take away. And I certainly got a lot of insight as well. And maybe are you are you currently working on a new book with a new cool title? Is this something we need to <laughs> revisit? I'm, I'm working on a an interactive workbook based on Dopamine Nation for counselors, families, uh, individuals, um, all kinds of folks. So I'm really excited about that. There are a lot of um, counterfeit uh, Dopamine Nation workbooks out there. So this will be the official Dopamine Nation workbook, I hope. And that should be coming out uh, next year. Fantastic. Maybe we can do a follow-up next year. You know? That'd be great. That'd be great. Well, thank you so much. I, I just thank you again Welcome. for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for your clear thinking and your clear, concise questions. It was my pleasure.